This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Inglis, number one in its field. The Everest Carnival continues on October the 12th with the Group 1 Spring Champion Stakes and the first ever Silver Eagle. Then to October the 19th for the world's richest race on turf, the $14 million Tab Everest and the Kosciuszko of $1 million. The $1 million Bondi Stakes highlights the Randwick card on October the 26th. Back to Rose Hill Gardens for the race they're all talking about on the 2nd of November, the $7.5 million Golden Eagle supported by the $1 million Redzel Stakes. Then it's out of town on November the 16th for the Hunter worth $1 million at Newcastle, followed a week later by the Gong carrying a $1 million purse at Kembla Grange. For punters, for horse lovers and those with a sense of occasion, this will be an Everest carnival for the ages. Special guest on the podcast is bloodstock agent Suman Hedge. Well, the cult to put written tycoon's name up in lights was capitalist. Magic Millions and Golden Slipper winner of 2016. Since then, he's had a Blue Diamond winner in Written By, who also ran a cracking fourth in the Golden Slipper. Written Tycoon Suman seems to get very precocious, natural runners. Yeah, he's he's a he's a great stallion. Um, I mean, it's one thing that he gets the precocious two-year-olds which and, and, and the sprinters which the market wants. But I think the thing that sets him apart from a lot of other stallions is he, he, he can generally get a very good physical. And we found over the years that a lot of the best stallions um, are a little bit inconsistent in their ability to get good, good types. So for breeders, that can be problematic when you're spending a lot of money. But with um, Ritten Tycoon, he, he, he often throws, you know, good, strong, attractive yearlings and, and, and is a fairly dominant typesetting stallion. So he's, he's, he's really ticks a lot of boxes and, um, and now he's finally getting the, the quality of mare that can really elevate him to another level. You were to be connected with another big name horse in 2012 when you selected and purchased a Northern Meteor cult at the Magic Million Sale. You had a bank of $300,000, but I don't think you needed it. Um, it you bought this one for Iskander Racing. Uh, did he? Did you buy him through the ring or did you do the deal later? It's a bit of an interesting story, um, John. So I, in December I'd been told by Sharif that, um, you know, I, I was going to be made redundant the following year and the company was really struggling at that point. It was before the whole Rit Tycoon thing had taken off. And uh, he, he said, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you up to the Gold Coast and I want you to buy some yearlings. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, the company's finished. And he said, no, no, no. Um, you know, I know you'll do a good job for me. I've listened to other people and it hasn't worked. You do it and hopefully things will bounce back before then and then, you know, we'll be fine. Anyway, um, so I've gone up there for the first time with some money to spend and to pick horses on my own. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I saw um, a couple of horses in the Kalani Park draft that I liked. I'd been friends with Reese and Chloe Smith who, who run that farm and we, we all loved the Northern Media Cult, um, which is Zoo Star. And, and he, um, but we thought that he would make a lot more money than what I had. So 
basically the horse had gone through um, and it was just a chance phone call uh, the following morning and because I'd seen that he'd, he, he was in the results as, uh, as being sold, that he'd actually been bought back by the vendor. And so I spoke to Reese and just said, look, um, is there any chance that this horse could be bought? And then he said, yes, but this is what we want for it. So I raced to the sales complex. I rang Sharif. I said, Sharif, I've just got to get this horse. This is the horse, you know. And um, anyway, we were able to do a deal um, and, and buy the horse. And he then became – he was actually quite a difficult sell, John, because mm. he was by Northern Meteor, who now everyone has a lot of respect for. But at the time, um, he was buying Costa. Costa wasn't – hadn't really proved himself as a sire of sires mm. and trained by Gay Waterhouse. And Gay at that time wasn't known as she is today as a great trainer of stallions. Um, so there was a lot of – there was a few queries and, and things like that. So it took me like about – six to eight months to sell the horse. Um, Even though he was a stunning type. Stunning physical, um, you know, and but it was so difficult to sell that I had to keep a share myself to get it done. So mm. I don't always keep shares in horses that I buy. Um, I'd probably do so more now, but at that time I didn't have any money. So I was like, you know, to, to be spending on racehorses. But um, I just decided at the time I said to my wife, look, um, I love this horse and I, I just want to invest in this horse and buy a share. And mm. so we, we, we kept a 5% share in him and um, thank God for that. I mean, I think it would have been <laughs> – I'd only had to ever get over that, um, yeah, buying a horse and not being involved in something yeah. like him, but he's a life changer. Yeah. Well, you were left with 35% after quite a lengthy period of time and it was Chris Waller who came to the rescue. Yeah, Chris um, had had the horse through the stables and, and he obviously broke in really, really well with Tim Boland and Tim said this thing's a, you know, I think he's he's a, he's a bit of a star and then he'd come into the stables and they all loved him and we said to Chris, look, um, really need to sell this share because we can't get it away. We've, we've tried our hardest and we can't. So he organised a lunch um, and got some of his best clients there at the lunch and 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 to his credit he got um that share sold and um yeah then we were away well he's away to a massive start zoo star and his progeny are very much in demand sunlight has been a great advertisement for him winner of imagine yep. millions a coolmore stud stakes and a william reed stakes and a new market handicap and the way she went in the Moyer stakes at Mooney Valley, there is more to come. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, um, I think it's it's great that she was a you know high class two year old, and 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 really maybe but for bad weather, she may have won a slipper as well. Um, you know, because it was quite a heavy track, I think that day. But um, yeah, she's just been a star from day one, and um, she's got such a strong resemblance to him as well. And I think a bit like Written Tycoon, one of the things that makes Zoo Star a, a, a really elite stallion is his ability to throw himself. Mm. He does seem to put a lot of himself and a lot of them have his head and they have his movement. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think um, it's still very early days, but he, he, he looks really promising and I'm, I'm really glad because um, having such a close association with the horse, it's, it's interesting when, when race, good racehorses become bad stallions it's like they become really tarnished and, and people's memories of the horses change. Um, so I really didn't want that to happen with him. I was hoping that he'd at least be respectable. Um, but 
it's turned out that he's been really good. Well, he's at the historic Widden Stud where his 2019 service fee has skyrocketed to 154000 Yeah, I mean, uh, not in my wildest dreams did I ever think that that would be possible. I mean, I, again, we hope that he'd be successful. Um, but, yeah, to get to that level, it's, it's quite incredible. And um, to be at such a historic and such a great farm as well like it's it was really um you know you felt quite privileged the horse standing there like the horse is bletchingly masked they've had so many champion race horses and stallions stand there um and and you just go there and it's a it's a magical sort of place you know just the environment there and and to have your horse based there was 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 good enough but the fact that he's doing a nice job is really really pleasing well despite the fact that you bred a doncaster winner you made the decision some time ago to go away from the breeding side of the business. Yeah, I, I just felt that um, what I really needed to do, John, was to get knowledge and get experience in all sorts of different parts of racing. So I'd worked for a trainer and, you know, done stallion syndications and um, then worked for a stud farm, um, you know, with Woodside. I worked there for a couple of years selling noms. And, yeah, I felt that I needed to do something else. So then I did a couple of years um, with Champion Thoroughbreds Victoria, um, managing managing that company. And um, we also had another associated company called Matchroom Genetics. And that gave me um, some really good knowledge in, in those areas and, and gave me the ability to meet a lot of new people and make some new connections, which was also very important. Mm. 20 years ago... The weanling market was very low-key. Today, it's very buoyant. With buyers looking for bargains, they can represent as yearlings at a handsome profit. Now, the process, Suman, is called pin-hooking. It's a term that uh, has really only come into prominence in recent years. Yes, yes, John. Um, I'd seen it um, done you know, around me through Reece Smith was the was the person I, I'd sort of learnt about this side of the industry and, and seeing what he'd done with weanlings and, and, and on selling them. And um, I'd gone to a, a sale with him and just watched what he did and, 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 and then I'd sort of studied the market a little bit and, and thought that there was some opportunities there. So um, we did a couple of uh, pin hooks I did privately with um, – one of my colleagues, Luke Wilkinson, who was uh, Mick Price's racing manager for a long time, and he's now moved on to Yulong. And we had some really good success. We'd, we'd sold a, uh, a Bella Spree filly at the English Premier Sale for a really good profit. And then we'd um, bought a written tycoon colt, which we'd bought privately, and we'd sold that at the English Easter Sale for um, 530000 mm. And so with that behind us, um, it gave me the confidence to do it and some of my clients that I'd met through Champion Thoroughbreds and, um, you know, some of my other jobs through the years had been watching and they they approached me and said, look, why don't we put a group together and you manage it? So that's sort of how that, um, that all started. Well, the term pin hooking originated in old Kentucky. Right. When, yeah, when tobacco was sold at market and speculators would take the young tobacco plants to the market and identify them by pinning a note up 
on a notice board. Interesting. And the term pin hooking emanated from that. I've actually always wondered where, what it, what because it, it's just not a term I'd ever heard before. So mm. that's very interesting. You got a pleasant surprise at this year's English Easter sale when a Suman Heads bloodstock offered Zoo Star Cult out of Metamesta, which had been pin hooked as a weanling for two hundred thousand dollars, made money undreamed of. Yeah, we 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 did um, uh, sort of. The start of that was um, on purchasing the horse and we inspected a lot of horses and I inspected horses with Scott Holcomb from Milburn Creek and Scott works for John Muir and uh, I've been very, very fortunate to have uh, my horses with Milburn Creek over the last couple of years and and establish a relationship with them Um, and they're just the best people, you know, professionally and, and just the way they go about things. And um, Scott and I had um, uh, found this horse and we both liked him and um, it was very, very important to me that Scott likes the pin hooks that I buy because um, he's ultimately selling them and working with those horses. So there's no, there's no egos or anything like that. you just got to work in with people and, and get the best outcome. So we both loved it, um, put the horse through. We'd, we'd purchased him for 200000 and then we, we, we sold him at, uh, the English Easter sale, uh, and he made a million dollars, um, which I, I believe was a record. Um, mm. Even if it wasn't, I mean, it was a great result for the for, for, for the pin hooking group. It was their first year of a five year deal. Um, but I've got to say, um, English were terrific um, with that horse because he just needed he needed that little bit more time, and they were really happy to work in with me. Um, and, you know, make sure that we're able to put the horse through uh, the sale where he needed to go, um, and ultimately we were able to get an incredible result. So, um, yeah, you you can't just achieve these things on your own. You need lots of good people around you and lots of um, luck as well to get these outcomes. A catalogue of almost 200 horses will be offered for sale at the final Inglis auction of the year, the 2019 Ready to Race sale at Riverside Stables on Tuesday, October 22nd. All horses are two-year-olds, broken in and prepared by experienced horse people and presented for sale, literally ready to race. Each horse will undertake a breeze-up session, which is a gallop ending in a 200-metre sprint. Each breeze-up will be recorded, which will enable prospective buyers to get a gauge on a horse's action, size and potential ability. There'll be an additional breeze-up session this year at Eagle Farm in Brisbane on Monday, September the 23rd, and other sessions will be held at Cranbourne, September the 13th, Warwick Farm, September 20th, Taupo in New Zealand, September the 23rd, with a second session at Warwick Farm on Friday, October the 18th. The strength and quality of the English ready-to-race sale catalogue is unparalleled in Australasia. You mentioned the name John Muir, uh, earlier Suman, uh, a man I've known for 40 years or more, and his level of professionalism has been evident to me right through those four decades. I'm, I'm not surprised that he's doing so well now in, in the thoroughbred world. Uh, John, it's just um, it's quite surreal for, for me, even today, to be able to um, have 
you know, partnerships and, and horses uh, with John and at that farm because I've always looked at that farm from afar and thought, geez, they do a good job and, you know, they always look amazing at the sales and they're so professional in, the, in everything that they do. Um, and, and it's been such a big help for me um, starting out and having that relationship with such a professional organisation um, and just such a good person as well because yeah. you work with lots of different people in your career and there's some people that you respect and some people you like and sometimes it's not both, you know. It's like you, you respect people, you don't necessarily like them. Or <laughs> in this case, in, in this case, it's both, you know. I've got so much respect um, and, and like them as people and um, I can't tell you how helpful they've been to my business. There's a little group called Mur Australia, named after your foundation broodmare, and they are significant backers of your weanling operation, while people like Rob Chapman, Sharif Iskander and Dave Barham are great supporters in other areas of the business. Yeah, so Rob Chapman, um, he he's like a, a business mentor for me, and, and so, same with Dave Barham and um, they, they've just um, opened up a lot of doors for me, uh, a lot of connections uh, through their networks. And, um, you know, I, I sort of – I decided when I was starting my own company, John, that um, I was very naive about a lot of parts to business. And the best way of learning is, is, is surrounding yourself, um, you know, with the, with the right people. And and they, they've been really instrumental in, in, in my decision-making and just – guiding me and making sure that I um, didn't get ahead of myself in any way and just take it very slowly. And they're, they're a really big help to me and I'm glad that I've been able to deliver them some results as well. You run all of your day-to-day business from an office in Melbourne. Now, is there any particular reason for the establishment of a Victorian base? I had to come down to Melbourne um, for work. So when when uh, I went to Eliza and was selling noms, um, I, I had to base myself in, in Melbourne and um, I sort of, yeah, over the last five, six years had been based here in different different sort of roles. But I think from from my point of view, Melbourne's a good base because racing's really big down here and, um, you know, we've got um, – it's, it's really well well set up with the breeders and everything's very close. All the tracks are close and it's uh, it's a good spot to be. So, um, yeah, look, I, I do miss Sydney at times because um, growing up in Sydney, um, it's always your home and, 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 and there's times when you miss it. But I think this is home now because we've we've been here long enough and, um, yeah, it's it's definitely where my professional career lies. You know, you've you've been very active in recent years at weanling and broodmare sales and venturing into the European market, but deep down, I'm sure the yearling sales are your number one passion. Yeah, I think um, that's absolutely right, John. Um, you know, I've, through necessity, I've had to do lots of different things to sort of stay stay afloat and um, and and also increase my learning. Definitely, my my passion is um, at the yearling sales, and it's it's probably a frustrating thing for me because um, you know I'm limited in budget, and often when you know I'd like to be buying more horses and and that, but ultimately I'm taking the risk there because I'm I'm buying a lot of these horses and specking them, and the risk is on me. And if anything goes wrong, um, you know it can set you really um, back on your heels. But 
yeah, like if in a perfect world, I think now um, we've bought half a dozen stakes winners and from, from not a, a whole lot of purchases and we've had some good success. So I'm, I'm very hope, hopeful that, um, you know, that um, going forward I'll have more opportunities to buy some buy some more yearlings and, and sort of, you know, um, prove my craft a little bit more. Your wife, Natalia, is certainly not an obsessive racing fan, but she's very supportive of everything you do. Yeah, um, the old saying, um, uh, you know, every uh, good man has a good woman. Um, I couldn't be, I couldn't speak highly enough of her and how important she is for me. Um, Being a support's one thing, um, you know, that's sort of, I think, expected in your partners, but... Um, I think she's just, um, you, you, you know, coming away from racing, you know, you have bad days on the track and your horses don't go well or you get bad news and you come back and, 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 and she's just, uh, you know, always positive and, and always encouraging. And the biggest thing is confidence, John. Like I think for anyone in any um, occupation, you perform best when you're confident and you're feeling good about yourself and she's given me so much confidence to, to do well and, and that's been a big part of um, having success, I reckon. What are your goals and aspirations under the banner of Suman Hedge Bloodstock? I, what I'd like to do is um, I, don't, I don't have ambitions to be this massive company and have, you know, thousands of clients or take over or try to do anything I'd like to maintain a niche because for me the most important thing um, apart from enjoying my work is enjoying the people that I'm working in with and clients so at the moment because it's a niche I know all the people I'm comfortable with them and I like them all and I want them to do well so um, I think the most important thing is that you always treat your clients money as it's your own um, and every decision that you make has that kind of ethos. And if you, you, you do that, then um, you, you tend to – you're not going to get it right all the time, but you know that your methodology was correct. And if we can continue to deliver uh, the results that we've had, then that I'd be very satisfied with that. You know, there is no more mysterious force than the field of genetics, and you've proven it on Two occasions with Written Tycoon and Zoo Star, you just never know what's around the corner. Yeah, it's uh, it's it, it's so true, um, John. I think one of the things that I've learned over the years is not to be too opinionated about um, uh, stallions, and uh, because they can really make a fool of you, you know. And you can think you can have all sorts of convictions that a horse is going to make it um, and going to work, um, and he'll fail. And you can also look at a horse and hate the horse and think that he's ugly and he's not what you like and he's got nothing going for him and he'll be a star. Um, so it's um, it is it's it's very intriguing, but I think it's a great thing because the fact that it's not predictable um, enables so many people to have the opportunity of being successful, um, and and that's what makes our industry great. You know, your walking testimony to the old theory that you must never let go of your dream. You're doing very well in a career you've dreamed about since Michael Clark got at Talak home in that 1986 Melbourne Cup, beating that old plotter, Rising Fear, uh, which was trained by uh, the late Larry Pickering. Um, God bless him. 
Eptelec. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, um, I, I can't tell you. He's just um, been a life changer for me. I, I think about it often, John, that if it wasn't for that horse, what I would be doing today, and uh, none of the options are good. <laughs> be a busker or I'd be like um, doing some sort of menial job because um, I really didn't have a lot of other options for me. But um, very, very fortunately, I'm, I discovered that horse and it's, been a, it's, it's just been a life changer. So, um, yeah, God bless him. <laughs> well, you never know if, um, if genetics count for anything at all. Had you not ventured into your current business, you might have been a very eminent surgeon operating from Campbelltown. <laughs> I tell you what, I'd have to um, come up with some um, very well-forged uh, uh, degrees to be able to do that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it's, um, it, it's, it's not – I think for me one of the best things, John, is that it's. I never forget um, how all of this started and it was very random and – there was a lot of for- good fortune, and and that's really important in life. Never to forget what um, you know how everything starts, um, and never take it for, for for granted. I feel so privileged to be in this industry, um, and to do what I love. And, you know, I think you talk to your friends and you talk to your family, and they often say, you know, how lucky it is to do something that you love. And um, and meet great people, and I mean, I, it's quite surreal for me to talk to you because, honestly, growing up, I think I I, I listened to you and Kenny Callender more than my parents because I was just watching the racing all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's uh, to be able to just have the opportunity to talk to people of your ilk, um, it's it's quite surreal, mate. And um, yeah, I feel extremely privileged. I've enjoyed it very much, Suman. Lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Congratulations on all you've done in a relatively short time and continued success. Thank you very much, John. Suman Hedge on our podcast, which was produced by Supernova Sound. (laughs) 